Okay, we're ready to start our second session, and uh, I want to talk to you a couple of items of information before we get started. Uh, I see some of you are here that weren't here in the last session. We have just finished writing a new book called Faith and Finances. You can see the title up on the screen here. By the way, we also have, we'll have it in, in about uh, six weeks in Spanish, Fe y Finanzas. Uh, the whole thing in Spanish also. Uh, but at any rate, we will have it in English. Uh, it, for this is, We just picked these up at the press on Tuesday, so I've, I didn't even have time to send them. I brought them on the airplane yesterday. So anyone who comes to four of the six presentations that I have, I will give you a complimentary copy of the book. And it's very, very valuable, what the Bible and the Spirit of Prophecy have to say about money management and Christian uh, finance. Uh, Kathy is going to start uh, a little sheet around here. If you didn't have your name on the first one and you were here, make note of that somehow. Just click there, check it, or make a little note. And uh, basically, this is going to be uh, uh, honor system. So if you tell me you were, you know, I'll, I'll pretty well trust you because if you lie, you're not going to heaven. And so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pretty much the bottom line there. Okay. If you will uh, pass it on this side to the back, I would like it back there and we'll start it on that side. I'll pass it across the aisle on the uh, Tom asked me to mention something during the break here that I want to share with you also. The last session, which is tomorrow morning at this time, I believe, we uh, will talk about the rewards of financial faithfulness. And uh, I have studied this quite intensely. In fact, I actually assigned it to another person who felt that what he was finding was so incredible that he was afraid to write about it because it almost seemed self-serving. Uh, I hope you understand what I'm saying. In other words, uh, you don't want to give for hope of reward. You understand. But God is very clear in the Bible and is also explicit in the spirit of prophecy that every one of us have an account in heaven. And I will talk with you about that. Now, the big question is, will, will uh, people who gave huge amounts have huge rewards and all those kinds of things? When you read the Bible, the, the real reward to people is the joy of seeing souls saved. That's the bottom line. But then beyond that, you have greater responsibility in heaven. Do, do you see? But it is also true financially, and that's what I'm going to talk to you about. It is not in vain that we serve the Lord. And uh, it's, it's interesting also that he says many times, great is there your reward in heaven if you do this and so on. Uh, and there are many, many passages, and we, I won't give you that one today. But what we're going to talk about now is the uh, planning for the cycle of life. And the cycle of life, I'll just give you right now, is everybody has a lineal life cycle. Just like we have a lineal history of the great controversy on the earth, uh, by that I mean uh, you have all the way from the fall of man to the second coming, and sometimes you know things happen cyclical, but we have basically a line, and you have a line in your life, and, and I'll show you about that, and I have a slide about it, so that's what we're going to talk about here, and so that when you get to my age, you're not wondering what's going to happen to the rest of your life. Do you understand? If you plan it properly, things really will work out very well for you. Uh, if you eat all of your seed, there's nothing to plant for next year, though. That's the whole point. So we're going to have a prayer, and then we'll start right into this. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your blessings in our life. I pray that you'll help each of us to... Uh, Look carefully to your word and, and scan and glean what we can best benefit from individually. May your Holy Spirit that inspired the Bible writers inspire each of us today. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Okay, what I'm going to do is get into this one and planning for the cycle of life, and I want you to see, by the way, all of this is in the book also, but I'm just going to do the highlight part of it. And uh, this is kind of a picture, and I have it in the book also, but this is kind of like your life, your planning, and your, your personal finances. How will you be earning your money? Well, well, how much of it will you save? What are your borrowing decisions going to be? Uh, most of you likely know that there were two major problems with what we call the subprime mortgage situation, which started the big snowball of the current financial crisis. First of all, there were greedy lenders trying to get more people to borrow money so they could get fees for it. You understand all of that. But then there, on the other hand, there were individuals who should have known they couldn't have made the payments getting houses. I actually feel more sorry for those people than I do the mortgage bankers because the average person will only buy a house once, twice, or maybe three times in their whole life. But mortgage bankers were selling mortgages every day, and they're professionals. Do you understand? They knew the people could not pay their mortgages. They were called what we call... Uh, boy, there's all kind of names for them, but Nina loans, no income, no asset verification. And they were giving people 100% mortgages, which is really, really incredible because there's no wiggle room should the market go down at all. So many of the people that are being foreclosed on now actually owe more on their house than it's worth. 10% of the houses in America right now are subject to foreclosure for that reason. It's just really, really incredible. But uh, I'll talk to you a little bit more about that. But we're going to talk about how much will you borrow and under what circumstances. But I will just tell you right now, for example, uh, I am a person who does, discourages getting involved in debt. But would it be appropriate under certain circumstances to get a student loan? What do you think? Sure. The answer is yes. And you'll be able to see that why in a few minutes. The problem is, I'll tell you, I'm just going to pick out a school that's a long ways from us. Let's just say you're a student at Andrews University. I just taught there this summer, and I was at Berrien Springs Village Church a few weeks ago. So I, I really enjoy Andrews, and our, our daughter Melissa graduated from Andrews. But let's just say that in your second quarter or whatever, you realize you're not going to be able to finish, uh, you know, pay your bill without getting some money from somewhere. And so you go to the student aid office, and guess what they tell you to do? Fill out this form, give us your parents' 1040 forms for the last two years, submit this, and in a couple of weeks we'll contact you. So they contact you and they tell you, guess what? You qualify for $10,000. Guess what most students do? Take the $10,000. What should they do? Say thank you, but use it as a line of credit, if you please. Do your very best to borrow from every, I mean, to get money from every other source possible, and then only borrow as much as you have to have to finish. If you could get by with $2,780, that's what you should borrow. Do you understand? And I'll show you some more things about that in just a minute. Why do I tell you to be so skimpy about student loans? You have to pay them back with interest. This is really interesting. Okay, now, uh, how will you do your spending? Risk management, this is the insurance and so on. Uh, what will you do with your investments? And what do you plan to do in the last part of your life? Those are decisions that people have to make. So here's what I was telling you earlier that I think is really, really important to know. If you do not graduate high school, now this is kind of an interesting thing. You will make about a million dollars in your life working, 40 years of working. Uh, if you graduate high school, you can bump that up about $400,000. Graduate college, or some college, excuse me, another $200,000. Graduate, this really bumps it up more than twice as much as a non-high school graduate. And if you are willing to be a professional person, you know, get your MBA, go to law school, become in a, a position or whatever, you can see it's, it's uh, four times what you'd make a non-high school graduate, unless you work for General Motors. <laughs> 
I'm just kidding you, but I will tell you that the real reason that the car companies are having the big problems right now is because the labor unions are killing them. General Motors, for example, has most of their blue-collar workers are not college graduates, didn't even go to college. And they're making $71 an hour. The interesting part is Toyota is paying their people $47. Now, this is with benefits, you understand, with their health needs and so on. But anybody who's got a calculator on your cell phone can figure this out. You understand that 71 is 50% more than 47, and you cannot compete in the market paying your labor 50% more than your competitors. Just not going to happen. This is very, very interesting. That's why the labor union people are standing in Washington right now trying to get the president to bail out the companies. It's a very interesting situation that we're seeing. But I'm going to tell you another thing. Do not think about the money so much except for this reason. It's not wrong to work at McDonald's. Do you understand what I'm telling you? But if you want to work somewhere else, you need to get an education. That's the important thing I'm going to tell you. Fast food, you know, you can barely get by. That's what it is, minimum wage stuff. And another thing is really interesting. I tell people, well, if you're professional, that's what you would probably earn there, unless you work for the church. You get the point? If you have advanced degrees and you work for the church, you just get more responsibilities. But guess what? You're storing up treasures in heaven. And I think that's important. So the whole deal, though, is you don't want to be destitute your whole life. And an education is the difference between being destitute and, and doing something more valuable with your life. Now I'm going to show you something interesting. There's a thing called aptitude tests. And uh, studies show that the majority of college graduates end up working in a field that has nothing to do with the degree they received. A wise plan would be for young people to take a battery of aptitude tests to determine their interest and match them with the field of study for which there will be jobs available. And Crown Ministries, which is a Christian ministry on the internet, crown.org, has a good self-administered aptitude test. And it is called Career Direct. And you can see it there. Both of our uh, children, our, we have a son, Andrew, and a daughter, Melissa. Both of them in high school took these tests. And it will tell you, based on your interest and aptitudes, here's what you should study in college, and here's the kind of job you could expect to get. You know, it's a whole range of things. But our son, Andrew, when he took the test, it said he did well in humanities. Well, that means he's probably not going to be an accountant or a doctor. Do you understand? So he likes reading and history and those kind of things. So he actually got a double major, history and English. He's an attorney today. And I will just tell you, both of those were good basis for going to law school. You see what I'm saying? And our daughter, Melissa, I think it's because Kathy read to them their whole early life, uh, whole sets of books. And even today, in their mid-30s, when Andrew and Melissa get each other a gift, guess what it is? It's a book or a gift card to Borders. I mean, it's just real simple. You pick it out yourself. The whole idea is they love books. So Melissa took an English major, and she's the associate editor of Liberty Magazine today. The whole idea is you do not want to take a major for which there are no jobs or for which you will be unhappy when you get done. Do you get the point? This is very simple. And you can do that, and it will save you. How, how, how much does it cost to go to Andrews University now? About 20000 a year, something like that. You, you get the point. And I think education is very valuable because, you know, well, let me back up and just show you this. Would you rather be at this level your whole life or this level your whole life and have spent $80,000 to get to that other level? 
You get the point? It's really important. And I don't want you to think about money so much, but I will tell you one thing. Most of you love the spirit of prophecy. Look up on your CD-ROM the words vantage ground. Vantage ground? God can use anybody, but those who have an education stand on, guess what? Vantage ground. You have a better life, and you are more valuable to people, etc. That's important. Okay. So, here's the kind of places that people can expect to get a job in the future. We know this. These are service industries expected to have a great employment potential. By the way, you'll understand computer technology, healthcare. Uh, I, I don't, I'll give you an illustration of this. The last information I've seen in the United States alone, just in the United States, there's a shortage of some 500,000 registered nurses. If you were to become a registered nurse, you wouldn't be working at McDonald's. Do you understand the difference? Okay. Now, uh, business services, social services, sales and retailing, hospital and food services, management, education, financial services, these kinds of things, training. I'll just give you another thing. I think that the more education you get within reason, and you still have to work between times and so on, but I like to get, like I just recently this past week, I took a certification exam to become a senior, certified senior uh, advisor. And you know that within two years, if you want demography changes, in two years from now, there will be 10,000 people retiring in America every day of the week. Because we have this, uh, it's like the egg and the snake, you know, that we have the baby boomers that will be, reach full retirement age. And when that group starts retiring, it's just like lemmings going off a cliff. And then just going, you know, it's amazing, really. And there's going to be a lot of need to help those kinds of people. Finances, health-wise, we have the health message. Most of the people are not prepared financially for retirement, and most of them aren't prepared health-wise either. Most Adventists have forgotten more than the average person knows about health. If we just practice what we preach, I'm wearing a pedometer right now, and it's, it's right here. And uh, I'm building up to take 10,000 steps every day, some way or another, running, walking, whatever. I'm only doing about 5,500 now with my average. But the fact is, if everybody in this room would walk 10,000 steps today, you'd get your exercise in. You understand? We know how valuable this is. It's really, really important to know. Okay, we're going to go on here. The way you manage your money has a great deal to do with your personal happiness, your stress level, the quality of your family life, the stability of your marriage, and success in your career. I just want to talk about this one right here, stability of your marriage. Do you know that almost half of all marriages in America end in divorce? Yes. 85% of them say that financial difficulties was the number one factor in the dissolution of their marriage. This is incredible, very, very stressful if you don't have sufficient or don't manage properly. So this one is very, very valuable to know. Success and, of course, your stress level, it's, it's just amazing. It wouldn't take a genius to figure out that the devil would like to see every one of these areas in your life messed up. Do you think he's been pretty successful at this? Yes. It's just amazing how, how uncanny he is. So I'm going to show you, uh, this is the cycle of life. You'll, you'll be able to see it. Uh, first of all, the laying the foundation may run into your 40s, accumulating assets, uh, and I'm just going to give you a little idea, 40s and 50s, preserving your assets, your 60s and 70s, and then distributing your assets age 70 and beyond. 
I'll just tell you something interesting. You're not thinking about it at your age, but I will tell you people my age think about it. Listen, nobody's taking anything with them when they die. Even if you're not a Christian, you're not taking it with you. It's just that simple. Isn't that true? You're going to give it to the government or your kids or the pet cemetery or something. It's just not going with you. It's just very simple. You've got to make plans for it. So that's the interesting part. So I've talked about it this way. The, these are ones that I, this is from just a civics book that, by, or money management. Li, uh, there's the learning years. This will be birched, birth to age 30. That's when you're getting your education. Uh, your earning years, 30 to 60. And returning years, 60 until you become room temperature. And that's the interesting part. You, you, you'll see you have three basic levels. So I'm nearing the end of mine. And what you do, that's the third stage here. But the whole idea is what you've done down here makes a great deal of difference of what's going to happen in the future. So if you don't get an education, you're going to be working at you know, low-life jobs your whole life. Or, you know, I, I won't describe all those kind of things. Okay. By the way, somebody asked me if we would have a question session at the end. Uh, if anybody wants to ask a question anytime, you can raise your hand. That would probably be better for me. But uh, I'd be happy to talk with you uh, or answer any question that you might have. Okay, I'm going to show you a little upside-down pyramid, which is just the, the uh, way people contribute. Uh, and this is, you know, annual giving, your regular giving, whatever it might be. Uh, I'm going to give you another one. This would be major giving. Like you really, really get involved in something. Like you help pay off the debt or you go on a mission trip or you give cash for an endowment to your school. And it just depends on where you are. But your final one is the things you do near the end of your life. And if you don't plan on each one of these, there's nothing going to happen up there. That's just pretty simple. So you'll understand how important that is. Now, I found this interesting statement. And uh, it's the one in white. He who rides a tiger cannot dismount. And I would say you either live within your income or your creditors will eat you alive. Do you guys like animals? Do you like nature? Uh, it's my understanding that the tiger is the largest of the cat family. They're actually bigger than lions. The lion is the king of the beasts, of course, because they hunt in a pride. You know, there's a bunch of them that will do it. But tigers typically hunt by themselves because they don't really need help. And if you imagine yourself riding a tiger, you couldn't let go or he would eat you. Isn't that true? Right here in California, wasn't it a couple years ago that some boys were taunting a tiger that jumped out of its cage and killed one of them? Yeah, that, this is interesting. I mean, they have no fear. Well, so I'm going to show you this. First, I'll back up and show you that from a financial perspective, that tiger is debt. Debt and its resulting bankruptcy have drastically changed the American financial picture. I was at Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, to one of the churches there, and a lady had just, had just retired from Raleigh-Durham Medical Center, 40 years as a nurse, and she enjoyed her work very much. And she said, when I talked about this, riding a tiger, she said, I learned a limerick when I was in high school, and I'll write it down for you. She gave it to me on a piece of paper. Here it is. There was once a lady from Niger who smiled as she rode on a tiger. They returned from the ride with the lady inside and the smile on the face of the tiger. Now, people that get you in debt do not care if you go bankrupt. Now, I'm going to tell you something incredible. There is a book that's out of print that I would highly recommend to read. And you can get it on the internet. And it's called The Two-Income Trap. And it was written by a lady. 
And uh, it's not just any lady. She teaches bankruptcy at Harvard University Law School. Elizabeth Warren is the lady's name. But she talks about these credit card companies. It's very, very interesting what happens. I'm going to give you an illustration so you'll be able to see. Assume for a moment that you have three credit cards and they're all maxed out and you uh, are late on one of them. I think I'm a little bit high from this. Can you turn it down slightly? Oh, get back out of the way. You think this is better? Is that better? Okay. You have three credit cards. Do you know that if they're three different companies, if you're a half hour late in the payment of any one of them, the next month all of your credit cards will be at the maximum rate. This is incredible. They're in cahoots. Something really interesting happened. My brother-in-law showed me this. He has uh, two different credit cards and he got a letter from one of the credit managers that wanted to increase his rate to a certain thing and the person signed it. Well, a whole different company, let's just say Chase and, and Citibank, he got a letter from Citibank, guess what? The same lady signed that letter. This is incredible. Well, the interesting thing that I'm gonna tell you, let's just say you have three credit cards and this is what the credit card companies will do to you. If you're late, you're all maxed out. Let's just say you have a $10,000 credit limit and all three of them you have at $10,000. Do you think that's unusual in America? No. Do you know that in the United States there's $915 billion every month that is held over till the next month. In other words, it's not paid off on credit cards. And the credit card companies make huge amounts. In a recent month, credit card companies made 1.4 billion just on the late fees they charge their customers. This to me is incredible. But anyway, let's just say that you have three cards maxed out and you're slow paying on one of them. And you just wonder what in the world is our family gonna do? And while you're contemplating that with your spouse around the kitchen table one morning, when you get the mail, there's this thing in the mail that says, guess what? You qualify for a line of credit or a home equity loan on your house. And you say to your spouse, thank God, this is just going to save us. So you get the home equity loan, pay off your credit cards, and then you realize that you can't make your home equity loan and your regular loan and your car payment and your student loan and all that. So you end up going bankrupt anyway. But guess the company actually knew that would happen. But remember, you could have discharged your credit cards in bankruptcy, but you can't discharge anything that has your house as the security without losing the house. People that don't understand bankruptcy think, well, if I file bankrupt, I can keep my house and I can keep my car. Sure, if you can make the payments, but you can't get discharged from the payments. You still owe the payments. You see what I'm saying? They're doing it for their interest, not yours. Really interesting situation. Okay, here's the bankruptcy. By the way, a letter has been circulating around the internet written by an Adventist person stating that in October of this past year, the highest number of bankruptcies ever recorded were recorded as part of the great precipitous fall that we're having. It isn't true because of this. In 2002, there were 30,000 personal bankruptcies in the United States every week. So if there's four weeks in a month, remember the October this past year, it was 105,000 bankruptcies. This is 120,000 every month in the year 2002. Do you see what I'm saying? 
Some people are also talking about 11.8% unemployment. It's not true. It's about 6.8. Anybody here can check that out. Get on the U.S. Department of Labor, Labor Bureau of Statistics. You know, you can see it there, Bureau of Labor Statistics. The, the, the uh, current uh, unemployment rate is 6.8. It would have to almost double to get what people are saying on the Internet. Okay, so this is 1.6 million families threw in the towel, and that was six years ago. Now, here's why people get in trouble financially, and I think it's, it's uh, very interesting. That sounds better to me. Okay, three main reasons why people get in trouble. You know what the first one is? It's in this order even. Ignorance. What is ignorance? You don't know. That's the right answer. It's not that you're stupid. It's just that nobody's ever told you. Isn't that true? I mean, I will tell you, the more I study, the more I realize I don't know. Have you ever felt that way? There's so much you could learn out there. There's just all kinds of amazing things you can learn. But here's the real interesting thing. Many people, couples, are financially illiterate. For example, I'm hoping it's not true for you guys, but when I went through school, it was possible to go through elementary school, academy, and college, and never take a course that would teach you how to manage your money. Write a check, you know, buy an insurance policy, pay for a house, anything like that. And yet everybody has to do it all the time. And the interesting part is I've just recently at the seminary, and I said, simply never taught biblical principles of money management. There's hope for these people, but you don't learn it at the seminary. And I, I've just recently, we're talking about the seminary curriculum. I'm assuming many of you are students or you have students in your family. And I will just tell you that when I was in college, I was studying for the ministry, so I actually was one of those few people who actually enjoyed Greek. So I didn't take just one year, I took three years of Greek. And uh, then when I went to the seminary, I took a year of Hebrew. And in the intervening 35 years since I finished the seminary, I have used my biblical languages occasionally. Did you hear what I just said? But I didn't learn anything about money management, and I needed that every day and every week and every month. In addition to that, people come to me for counseling, and they come to their other pastors, and the problem is they don't know either. That's the real serious thing. So this book, I will guarantee you, will change your life. This is what I really want you to understand. It is very, very valuable information. And I, I really uh, appreciate the fact that you guys have come, and I'm glad that I don't have to carry many back with me. So... <laughs> I brought them on the airplane because they just came off the press. Okay, here we're going to go on. The second, what's the first one? Ignorance. People don't know. Second one is greed and selfishness. And that is people live beyond their means. Now listen carefully to this. They are not willing to live in, drive, or wear what they can really afford. Let's just talk about drive right here. I'd love to drive a BMW convertible. But all I can afford is the Ford Focus. Do you get the point? That's the difference. I mean, many people that are driving fancy cars and fancy clothes and so on have it on their credit card or they're paying big payments. Uh, many people feel, of uh, these same people feel that they're just too poor to tithe. Consequently, they live their lives without God's promised wisdom and blessing. And that is really, really sad when you think about it. Okay? Now here's another one, and this is a very serious illness without adequate insurance, being abandoned by a spendthrift marriage partner. Do you know what that means? Most of the time, unfortunately, it's the men who get involved in these businesses and lose their shirt, and it causes so many financial problems they just abandon their wife and move to Alaska or something, or who, who knows where they go. The whole point is, 
occasionally this happens to ladies and there's just no way in, in the whole world that they could pay off all the debts their husband ran out. So they could, you know, they file bankruptcy and they could start over typically. Uh, another one is the natural disaster. I don't know if you are aware of it, but some of you have probably helped out in short-term mission trips down on the Gulf Coast where Hurricane Katrina came ashore. There are some people's houses that are totally gone and have never been rebuilt because they just lost it. They, were, they had been built at a place where they couldn't get insurance or whatever. It's gone, just simply gone. The major asset of any family, most families, is their home, and it is totally gone. Those are kind of things. Another one is a major financial loss, not of your own doing, and you, know, you, you may get into a partnership situation, those kind of things. Now, this is something that I think I really want you to know about, so I'm going to put them all up here and let you see them uh, to begin with. Get-rich-quick schemes. This uh, guy who's just now been indicted in, in New York for the get-rich-quick scheme, the Ponzi scheme, uh, you understand what Ponzi schemes are? Ponzi was actually a man's name, but the idea is, and it's named after him, that people uh, get encouraged to invest with a certain person who promises great high returns. And I will just stop right here to tell you, if you're making more than 11% per year, it is a scam most of the time. Because that's the typical uh, amount that stock markets return over the last 40 years. Do you understand what I'm saying? One thing for sure is the higher interest rate you get, the more risk you're taking with your money, whether you believe it or not, whether they tell you or not. Do you understand? Now, there are people who can manipulate the market and they can, you know, uh, uh, some of these people, I should have Mike talk about this, but you know, the, 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 uh, the derivative speculators and so on, people were speculating about mortgages, not getting involved in mortgages, but speculating about it, just like they were speculating with the gas prices. 90% of, of crude oil trades over the last five years or so were not, no one even intended to make, take possession of oil. They were just speculating on the price. That's the, the whole situation. So I'm going to tell you, get rich quick schemes. Now this is very, very interesting to know. The reason it's so interesting, I've got a whole section in the book about this, but I will just tell you this and it's really, really important to know. Most people that encourage you to get involved in a get rich quick scheme actually sincerely believe that they are doing you a favor. Did you hear what I say? Now, this is important. But get-rich-quick schemes have four things in common, every one of them, and they're right there. And get-rich-quick schemes come into the Adventist church in the winter. You want to know why? Well, it just happens that right now we're in winter. This coming Sabbath evening, when will sun go down? About 4.30, 5 o'clock. Anybody go to bed at that time? Not unless you work unusual shift patterns. I will just tell you that one of your friends at Vespers or AY will come to you and say, why don't you guys come over to our house and we're going to talk to you about something real special we just found out about. We'll have some pizza and popcorn and so on. And they will tell you about this awesome thing where you can make a six-figure income. You understand what I'm talking about? And who wouldn't want to do that? Now, I'm going to show you. Here's what they talk about. Uh, promise of very high returns. You're going to get wealthy really soon, but it's something that you really don't understand. You have to risk money that you can't afford to lose, and you have to make a quick decision. So your friends will tell you, if you get involved with us this weekend, you'll be in on the, what's the next part? Ground floor. 
Exactly. And we will give you till Monday to make your decision. Otherwise, we'll tell someone else about it, and you'll wish your whole life you could have gotten involved with us. Now, I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you two of them, maybe, so you'll understand how valuable this is to know. There was an organization a few years back, maybe 10 years ago, called Greater Ministries. It sounded like it was Christian. And if you gifted money to them, they would help missions around the world and so on. But the interesting part, you would get about 25% every six months on your money, which is incredible. I'm going to tell you now two things about it. Seventh-day Adventists in California alone lost millions of dollars with this Ponzi scheme. Now, I started to tell you earlier the Ponzi scheme, so I'm going to go up and tell you the rest of that. A Ponzi scheme is it takes more people all the time to get involved in. The new money that's invested pays off the people at the top until they, they run out of suckers at the bottom. You understand? And then the whole thing it, it collapses. That's what happens. People lose money by the millions of dollars. The guy we're just talking about is on the front page of most newspapers in America, took $50 billion from wealthy people and, and uh, endowment funds from colleges and all kinds of interesting things. But here's the, the other thing that I will tell you about this is that all seven of the principals or the leaders of greater ministries are now in federal prison in Florida. However, nobody got their money back. It's really, really interesting. So I'm going to tell you a story now. A man called me up at the general conference and said, Elder Reed, I have this wonderful opportunity to supplement my retirement income. And you know, everybody needs, could use a little extra money, especially at that part of their life, they think. But he says, my wife will just not hear about it. And he wanted to put his wife on the phone and have me convince her that it was okay to do this. So I said, I'll tell you what, since you mentioned that you're married, you two come to my office. So I told this man, you, we made an appointment, and he and his wife came. He explained the whole thing about it. I'll just tell you real quickly what it was. It was a situation where he had learned some way that most of you are probably aware of, uh, a lot of people came to California in 1849 because of the gold rush. You know why they left California? They found gold in Alaska. That's the reason. And so they went up there. Well, at any rate, in California, a lot of places up out of Sacramento, you know, where they had these dredges that would go up the rivers, and they're big floating barge thing that has a conveyor belt on the front that brings the raw dirt up on and the rocks and stuff, and then a sluice box where they wash it all out, and then the tailings go off the back, and it ends up being big round rocks. You see piles of these along all the rivers in Northern California, almost all of them. At any rate, this guy heard that... If he, that was kind of a crude way to get the gold out. But anyway, with modern technology, he was told, you could turn those dredges around, re-outfit them, and send them back down through the same rock and get a whole lot more gold than there was there that got the first time. Because a lot of it just went overboard. It really made sense to him. The problem was it would take $100,000 to re-outfit one of these dredges. They needed 10 people to each put up $10,000 and they could do it. And then when they started making the money, they'd get paid back and everybody would be happy and making lots of money. And especially when the gold price of gold goes up as it typically does when there's a you know, recession. Anyway, his wife, I looked at her then and I said, what do you think about it? Now these people are retired now and she started weeping and she said, Elder Reed, I haven't slept a bit since she's been thinking about this and this is all he talks about. But we've just paid our house off and he wants to get a line of credit on our house to get his $10,000, etc. You understand. And I just don't think we should do it. What do you think? She said to me. 
And I said, well, I think you guys just made your decision. And she said, what do you mean? And I said, when you get married, God said that you become one. Isn't that true? Now, let me tell all of you this. Some of you are married. Some of you are contemplating it. When you get married, whether your spouse knows anything about money management or not, God gave you that person to keep you from doing stupid stuff. <laughs> I'm really telling you the truth. It's true. If I didn't have Kathy, no telling, I'd have an airplane, and I'd have a sailboat, a whole bunch of other stuff, all mortgaged, do you understand? The, the, the real interesting thing is, I told the man, that's your answer, don't do it. Two weeks later, he said, you know, I'd been in touch with these people, and I just about got involved. He says, thank you, you saved my marriage, you saved my, my uh, reputation, you saved, you know, my finances, and so on. The man got 10 people to give 10,000 each, but instead of going to Alaska, he went to Mexico, and, you know, he's enjoying the money. You understand? Now, this is, this is the real typical thing you see all of these. You have to make it, you understand. If you have those, anytime anybody tells you that, they're going to be serious as a train wreck. They think they're doing you a favor. But you don't do it. You just say, I'm sorry, our family is not interested. That's the point for you. And by the way, it could wreck you. Another interesting thing is when these things come around in churches, then when they crash in, guess what happens to the friendships of your church family? It's just, it's terrible. Very terrible. Okay, now what can we do to experience financial freedom? Here's some things you can do. The first one, get organized and develop a budget, have a plan. A budget is just real simple. What, by the way, I have a whole budget sheet in the book and so on, and you can fill it out. By the way, if you do get a book, I would suggest in the forms that you have in there, there's a, there's a balance sheet and a budget and so on. I would suggest not writing on it. Take it to work or school or something and make photocopies of it, because then you won't mess up the original documents. Uh, anyway, you can just, how much comes in, what this, what, how much you spend. By the way, a budget, to most people, about, is about as interesting as the diet. And people just don't like those things. It's just really credible. But it's, you know, I have a master's in public health from Loma Linda, and I would just tell you that most people that are on diets are just waiting to get down to the weight they used to be, or would like to be, so they can go back to eating like they used to. And, you know, it's, you have to lifestyle change this stuff, you know. But at any rate, uh, budgets are not bad. It just helps you to be able to spend for things you really need by doing the appropriate things. Okay, the second one is spend less than you earn. Determine to live within your means. More than 40% of Americans spend more than they earn every year. How do you think that's even possible? Credit and debt. Lots of those kinds of things. It's really, really amazing when you think about it. So these, oh, I will just tell you something interesting. From a health perspective, people want to know, well, what can I do? I know Weimar has a good program for uh, reversing diabetes, type 2 diabetes. And, and the real interesting thing about it, it's lifestyle situation, as you know. And then if I had hypertension or if I was obese or if I had heart disease in my family and so on, there's not a different disease for every, I mean, a different diet for every one of those. It's all the same thing. Eat a wide variety of unrefined fruits, grains, nuts, and vegetables in sufficient quantity to maintain your ideal weight, and you're going to be healthy. Isn't that true? Now, the whole idea is that there's not a special financial thing for any one of your special financial problems. It's all the same thing. It's these seven points. And that is spend less than you earn. By the way, if you think you're poor, visit India or Haiti. When Kathy and I were involved in evangelism in India, it was really, really incredible because we had one meal a day that the local pastor's family and a couple of other ladies, they cooked the meals for us. 
And uh, by the way, they have good food available over there. But what they do to it was awful. You know, they put all these peppers and stuff in it. So we told them, just, you know, just make the uh, potatoes and the beans and the okra and stuff, you know, with just a little bit of salt and that's it. Uh, so we enjoyed the food. And by the way, they would eat what we didn't eat afterward, and not from our plate, of course, but from the big kettles. And uh, they said, wow, we should have been doing this all along. It's a lot better for us. Uh, to me, it's, it's really interesting, but I was visiting with the pastor one day while the ladies were getting lunch ready, and he had been pastoring by walking between his churches. But somebody from ASI had helped him to get a bicycle, and he was so thrilled that he had a bicycle. He only knew one person in one of his churches that owned a car, and that man was a taxi driver. So he asked me one day, do you own an automobile? He's not supposed to ask that kind of question to me. <laughs> I had to tell him I have two of them, one for me and one for my wife. Do you understand? Now, from his perspective, what am I? Rich. You get the point? The real deal is if you didn't have the money, you could get by some way. Pretend like you have to do that, and you will be much better off. Here's another little interesting one. Save a little from every pay period, starting with only $50. Not just your retirement, but just a little bit. Do you know the spirit of prophecy? Ellen White, uh, we have this compilation called Adventist Home. Section 13 in Adventist Home is about personal finance. And it says, every time you get any money, save a little bit. This is interesting. Tithe and offerings, put God first, but then save a little bit. If you did that, there would be, most emergencies would not be an emergency for you. It just wouldn't be. That's important. Okay. Another one, this is very, very valuable. Avoid debt like AIDS. I said AIDS. Ellen White said smallpox and leprosy. In her day, smallpox was the worst disease known to man. If you got smallpox, almost always the prognosis was death. And she said, avoid it like smallpox. So the idea is interest is one expense that you could live without. And this is very, very interesting. By the way, if you put something, let's just say that you bought a, a flat screen TV on your MasterCard. If you only make the minimum payment on it, how long would it take you to pay off your credit card? Well, some of them are set up where it, that it hardly ever gets paid off. By the way, some credit card companies are unscrupulous. For example, Sears, if you have a Sears card, if you have less than $500 that you owe, they will send you a statement saying, none due. Mm -hmm. And you can see, well, I owe $495, but they don't, you don't have to pay anything that month, so they can charge you interest the next month on the unpaid balance. Do you understand? It's just amazing. Okay, we'll go on here. The fifth one, be a diligent worker. I have the unique distinction in my office, which is the North American Division at the General Conference, have being the only person who's been to every camp meeting as a speaker in North America. It's all 58 conferences, you know, Canada, the province of Canada, and so on. And I frequently do this kind of a seminar, and I, I, when I talk with people, sometimes I ask them, where are you working, or what kind of work are you involved in? And sometimes they'll say, well, kind of between jobs and I haven't worked for a while and so on, but you have to be a diligent worker for all this to work. And by the way, unless it is something that's unconscionable, 
that would be like being a bartender or a belly dancer in a bar or something. Any work is good work. Do you understand? There's not something you won't do. So what do you think Proverbs 29, uh, 22, 29 says? Would anybody guess? Show me a man who's diligent in his work. He will stand before kings, not mere men. So hard work always pays off. If you're a diligent worker, your employer will do the very best they can to keep you employed. That's important to know. Okay. Another one, be faithful to God. He has given us so many promises. Remember, we just read those, if you were here in the last session, Deuteronomy 28, 1 to 14. Your family cannot afford to live without God's blessing. I just think this is important. Anytime people talk to me about money management, I say the very first thing you should always do, it's the foundation, is be honest with God and be faithful with Him. Because you're in partnership with God. You remember many of the times in the Bible when God was going about to do something, the, the, the leaders would say, God, this wouldn't be good for you. People wouldn't look kindly toward you if you, did, you know, just destroyed all the righteous or whatever. And God has a reputation, so he wants his people to prosper. And then another one is, remember, this earth is not your home. Our management here determines our eternal destiny. All the stuff we have is going to get burned up someday. So we have to realize, and, and, and I'll just tell you... Uh, just briefly, a little story. You understand in uh, Luke, the 17th chapter, uh, where, where the, uh, the story of the, the people coming to Jesus and asking, what's it going to be like when you come back? And he's talking there. I'll, I'll just tell you the exact verse because I think it's verse 21. But if you look at Luke 17, I believe I have the right one in mind here. Yeah, well, it's verse 32. Uh, Luke 17, 32, there's the point, remember Lot's wife. These are written in red in my Bible, the words of Jesus, remember Lot's wife. What do you think he means by that? I'm going to tell you the bottom line without telling you the whole story because everybody knows the story. No person or anything is worth trading for eternal life. You understand, there's nothing more valuable on this earth than eternal life. Nothing. No person or anything. Everybody who leaves this earth alive will have to make a decision that Lot's wife did not make, and that's it. Do you know that when the angels brought Lot and his wife and his two daughters out of Sodom and set them down on the outside? I just love Bible stories, but if you read the story, you know something interesting happened. It was early morning, but the gates weren't open. The angels levitated them right over the wall and set them down on the outside. And then God, who had stayed behind to talk to Abraham, met them, and it was the voice of God that said, do not look back. But Lot was arguing with God about, you know, some wild animal will get me or, you know, my back's hurting me and all that stuff. Uh, anyway, I can't sleep on the ground. His wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. You want something interesting? Ellen White says she became a pillar of salt forever. She died the second death right on the spot. Why did she look back? Anybody know? I've heard the answers right already. Her heart was still back there, her stuff was still back there, and her kids were still back there. Now listen carefully. Every person that leaves this earth alive at the end will have attachments to this earth, they'll have relatives that decided not to follow God, and they'll have stuff they're leaving behind. 
you have to decide right now that nothing on this earth is more, more than going to heaven. This is really important that you understand that. To me, it's just very valuable that we know these. Okay, what do we give for? Well, we don't give because we have too much. Isn't that true? I mean, everybody could use their, all their money. But we give in response to experienced grace and in thanksgiving for God's blessings. We just say, by the way, Ellen White says this is the only way we can express our thanks is return gifts to God. Though he doesn't need the money. We give to the things that we believe will advance the cause of God. Now, here's one that's really interesting to me. I'm going to ask you this question before reading this. Does everybody understand that God is the owner of everything? Yes. How do we understand that? Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, the beginning God created everything, right? And Psalm 24, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those that dwell therein, everything belongs to God. So, if God has lent me stuff to use, when I'm finished with it, what should I do with it? Give it back to Him. That's very basic. But, you know, people always gripe about that. They say, when I'm about to die, the church hovers around me, wants to know what I'm doing with my money and, you know, what I'm going to do with my, my wills and trusts and all that stuff. By the way, it's really interesting, and I believe this is true. And this is, if you make your will so that the Lord's work gets what you have, the devil will keep you alive longer. Just kidding. <laughs> okay. So Christians understand that since God is the rightful owner of everything, when they're finished with their resources, they return them to God by helping others and making contributions to advance the cause of God. Now, I want to give you real quickly help on getting out of debt should you happen to be in debt. If you're not, I know that some of you are trained as Bible workers and so on, you can help people. People will love you if you help them with this. This is really, really important. So I'm going to talk to you just a little bit about the tyranny of debt and then we'll talk about how to get out of debt. Uh, the first one, what is debt? Proverbs 22, verse 7, it says, The rich rule over the poor and the borrower is the slave or servant of the lender. Do you believe that's true? Yes. It is true. Okay. Uh, is bankruptcy an alternative for the Christian? What do you think? Well, it's available to us. And under certain circumstances, only about three times in the last 25 years have I ever recommended it to anybody. But I will just tell you it was under the circumstance that I mentioned earlier, like when a woman has been abandoned by a spendthrift husband and so on. But Deuteronomy 15, verse 1, just so you'll know, it is somebody says to me, oh, by the way, how often can you file for bankruptcy protection? Once every seven years. If you do file for bankruptcy, it, uh, how long does it appear on your credit record? Ten years. Ten years. And this is also another interesting thing. It could actually affect you for the rest of your life. Uh, I went to law school in Georgia, in Atlanta, Georgia State University. And I plan to also have a license in Tennessee. And if you've practiced law for six years and so on, you can, they have reciprocity. So if I fill out a 35-page application and give them $1,000 and you know, tell them all the judges I've practiced before and attorneys that know me and clients I've had, they will let you practice law and get a license in Tennessee. One of the questions in that application was, have you ever filed for bankruptcy protection? It didn't say in the last seven years or the last 10 years, have you ever? And I can't just write in there, none of your business or not apply. You know, it doesn't apply to me. It applies. Do you understand? This goes to character, and this is really, really important for you to know. 
Okay, Deuteronomy 15 verses 1 and 2 talks about the end of every seven years. The creditors were to forgive the debt. It's not the debtors. Do you understand? God was trying to limit long-term indebtedness. Read it very carefully. It's in there, 15, 1 and 2. Now I'm going to talk to you a little bit about surety. Anybody know what surety is? Co-signing. It's co-signing. The Bible says you should never do it. Four times in the book of Proverbs alone, it says you should never co-sign for anyone. Now I'm going to tell you something. All of you are committed Christians, and I know because you filled up this room from the front to the back. I mean, you didn't have to come in here. So I'm just going to tell you something very, very interesting. People will come to you and say, you're a Christian, aren't you? Well, sure. I'm down and out of my luck, and the bank won't give me any money. I need some money. Would you, you know, co-sign for me at the bank? And they make you think that if you're a Christian and you don't do it, you're a hypocrite. But what I'm going to tell you is the right answer is, yes, I'm a Christian, and the Bible says I should never do it. Hold it up high. This is your answer. And the interesting part is, listen carefully. I don't want to become across mean. It is appropriate to help people when you can. But the Bible says you should never become responsible for another person's debts. And that's the problem with co-signing. It's very, very serious. And I want you to understand this. It's very, very valuable. People will try to get you to co-sign for them, and they'll say, well, you know, you're an elder in the church or whatever. Do not do it. The Bible says you should not do it. I have all four verses in the book, so you'll be able to see it uh, there. Okay. By the way, there's weird stories I could tell you about. Uh, I think I'll just tell you one of them. Uh, an older couple came to me at a camp meeting, and they're in their 70s. And they said, I just wish you had been here about uh, a year ago or something. And I said, what was the story? Well, their son in his late 40s had come to them once, and they had saved about $65,000 in a savings account to use in their retirement for special needs, like replacing their car or going on a mission trip or something like that. At any rate, th their son in his 40s came to him and said, Mom, Dad, I've got this awesome uh, opportunity to go into business for myself, and I don't have to work for the other man and you know all that stuff, and I'll make a lot more money and be a real blessing and so on. At any rate, he said, I know you've got that money in the bank, but I don't want your money. I have to have a certain amount of money to get into this business, and, uh, but the bank won't loan me any money. By the way, that's a red flag for anybody. You understand it's a high-risk loan to start with. Anyway, but if you will co-sign for me, once the business gets going, I'll pay off the loan, and you'll be off the hook, and the whole thing will be, you know, wonderful. What should they have said? They should have said, the Bible says, that's what you're supposed to say, the Bible says you should never do it. At any rate, everybody here already knows the end of the story. Almost all new businesses fail, like 80% of the new businesses in America fail the first year because they're undercapitalized or not managed properly or whatever. Anyway, when he lost the business, the bank came to the parents and took their $65,000. So for the whole rest of their life on earth, they have no nest egg. But the lady, the mother, chipped in and said, but he said he was sorry. That's the end of the story. So my son Andrew comes to me on his 16th birthday. If you're a man in the United States, what almost always happens on your 16th birthday? Get your driver's license, right? So Andrew had studied and taken you know, driver training at high school and so on, and he had studied his book and went up and aced the test, and he had his driver's license. He says to me, Dad, I'm going to, uh, now that I have my car, my driver's license, don't you think I need a car? And I said, Andrew, that would be wonderful. 
And he started you know, saying that I could take my sister to school and I could take myself to work. He's working at Taco Bell. You guys have Taco Bells out here where you live probably, don't you? Taco Bell is an interesting place, I'll just tell you this. There's only 12 food items in the back of Taco Bell. No matter what you order, it's a mixture of that in some way. So it's just, it's not rocket science back there. So Andrew worked at Taco Bell for three years. His Uncle Ken told him that Taco Bell is that place that if you show up at work on time, for three days in a row, they want to make you manager. And the real deal is it's almost all young people learning to work, you know, anyway. So Andrew says, I'm working at Taco Bell, and I couldn't get a loan. I mean, I'm working minimum wage and so on. But he says, Daddy, he says, you know I work hard, and if you would give me, if you'd co-sign for me, I would make all the payments. So he's looking at me, and I didn't say yes or no, and he looked at me, and he could tell by my eyes, he says, you're not going to do it, are you? And I said, no, I'm not. And he says, why not? You know I'd make the payments, don't you? What did I tell him? The Bible says you should never do it. So I told you he's an attorney today, and of course he was just in high school then, but he always had this questioning mind, so he says to me, Daddy, I want to ask you a question. I said, sure. He said, did your dad co-sign for you when you got your first car? And I, I don't know how he knew it, but I said, yes, he did, but he didn't know any better, and I know better. So the real <laughs> bottom line is, <laughs> then I said, remember? I want to be kind of funny a little bit, but real serious. It is important to help people but not become responsible for their debts. If you co-sign a note, even though someone else gets the money and it's their loan, it's on your credit record until it's paid clear off. You need to understand that. That's why a majority of co-signed notes are paid for by the co-signer, just to save their own credit. So I said to Andrew, I'll tell you what, you determine what kind of a car you want, you save up half the money, I will give you the other half. Now that's really, that's helping, you understand? I didn't realize how much it was until uh, a few months later, Andrew came to me, he had a big Honda dirt bike and he'd sold that and a lot of other stuff and he'd worked extra at Taco Bell and he says, Dad, I found the car I want, it cost $3,000 and I've saved up $1,500, where's your money? So he got his car after all. But the whole deal is he took real good care of it, drove it all the way through college because he had a lot invested in it, you understand? It's a good lesson also, so that's important. Okay, personal surety. This one's interesting. This is co-signing. This one is your own note. And that's when you get upside down in your mortgage. What I mean by that is, listen, almost everyone in America who's making monthly payments on a car owes more on the car than it's worth. It's really true. So that's personal surety. That's why we always encourage people to have a significant down payment, like 20% or whatever, so you're not upside down in your mortgage. And that would have been, that, would have, that alone would have avoided the whole subprime mortgage problem. Because not only were they paying on 100%, but these people also were given variable rates, and they were also paying private mortgage insurance. This is just the worst case scenario you could come up with. It just really, I mean, it was doomed to failure from the beginning. Okay, now I'm going to show you this, not because you've ever seen one of these. You guys are too young to, to have seen this. But I just want you to understand, have you ever heard reading the fine print? Now, in the back, you're not going to be able to read this, but I'm just going to show you something interesting. Today, uh, recently, I asked a guy in our office at the General Conference, how many uh, offers for credit cards do you get in the mail every week? Now, some of you probably don't get any, I don't know, but if, if you have you know, established credit anywhere, you're going to get these things in the mail. I usually get probably 10 or 12 of them every week in the mail. 
uh, offers from Chase and Citibank and many others for you know a line of credit or all kinds of unusual things. Anyway, I'm just going to show you something interesting. Have you ever heard the expression smelling a rat? Well, I'm just going to show you how to find a rat. Here it is right here. This, you can see it all the way from the back. This is one of these quick money loan things. You can check right there if you want to borrow 5000 or right here if you want to borrow 4000 or right here if you want to borrow 3000 Now, can you see a rat yet just from what I've shown you? There's a rat right there. That 100 is a rat. Why isn't this 5000 4000 and 3000 Well, the rat is... In the United States, under the Uniform Commercial Code, it is illegal for lenders to, loan, to charge high interest on loans of $3,000 or less. This is purportedly to help poor people. So they want you to borrow $3,100 so they can get out from under that law and thereby charge you 19% interest. Isn't that incredible? Okay, I think it's time for us to stop, isn't it? Uh, I know you have other meetings, so I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm only going to just show you really quickly. All this is in the book. So... There's a debt elimination process that you can get, how to get out of debt. I'm only going to show you this, and then we're going to stop. Three-step plan to get out of debt. Anybody can do it. There's a basic premise, though, like a geometry problem. You have to establish the tithe to be involved in God's blessing. But you declare a moratorium, no additional debt. You make a promise with God that as he blesses you, any extra money you get from any source will go on your debts. And then the last one, you list all of your debts from the largest to the smallest in descending order. And it would look kind of like this. And you make the minimum payment on every one every month. And then you add on the one at the bottom till it's paid off. And then you take that minimum payment and put on the next one and so on. It's called snowballing the debt. And if you have a home mortgage, that one should be paid off last. Why? It's the biggest one and the interest is still tax deductible. And so wait, pay that one off very last. And I'll talk with you later about how to pay that one off. Well, thank you for your kind attention. If some of you have questions or comments, you can come up afterward. But I know, don't you have a plenary session now, too? Okay, in a few minutes. Okay, let's have a prayer, and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your blessings. I pray that you'll be with each one who has come, that insights gained will help them to be in your will and to understand it and to follow it. And dismiss us now with your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.